This podcast is designed for you to discover more about who you are, to challenge your old adopted beliefs, and to expand your awareness of what's really possible. I'm Adam Esco, and this is The Unspoken Agreements. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Unspoken Agreements podcast. I am your host, Adam Esco. So welcome back to part two of Lisa Marie's just heroic and inspirational journey. This one is going to be a very real and heavy and very descriptive uh, episode. So before we get to that, for those of you who don't know me, I am a life coach and a business strategist, and I get to work with people that really want to make a big shift in their lives. They want to do something that they're passionate about and actually find a way to do that and make money and start the business they want, and we get creative, and I work with their lives into making that dream a reality. That's something I did for myself, and I get to do it now for my clients, and it's something that really moves me. And I love to um, help people be just extraordinarily successful and happy doing that. So if that's something that speaks to you, please feel free to reach out to me at adam at escocoaching.com. I also like to take a moment to thank Truth Work Media, who uh, produce this podcast. They are such a joy to work with. They do such an amazing job. If you hear the music, um, that's all them, really. So if this is something that you want to get into, podcasting, your small business, big business, just a per- one person by yourself, they could guide you the whole way like they did for me, and I have nothing but good things to say about them. Okay, now we're getting to part two with Lisa Marie, and I, again, want to just commend her for her bravery, her heroism, her uh, vulnerability, and she she does not hold back. She shares, and we're going to get into it right about now. Throughout that time, and, and even before he got deployed, what was the communication like between you and your mom? Did she have any thoughts on your marriage and was she someone that you looked to for support? Yeah, I, I definitely did. Um, but, uh, but just to a limited extent, I would say I spent time with family, but because I had these other friends that had really current experiences with what it was like to ha- to be a, a military wife with a husband deployed, I relied on them more for that kind of support. Um, my mom was actually widowed, um, Uh, when she was in her 20s, um, her husband died in Vietnam. So she had that history, but obviously so much has changed in um, how things are done and communication and everything. She was writing handwritten letters then, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so... So um, I would say that she she was... My family was very supportive of our marriage. Um, I... You know, he's, he's, he was very charming. He was very funny. Um, he clearly loved me. Goodness. He just loved me to just to such an extent that, um, yeah, I mean, my mom was concerned about the cultural differences. She was really like concerned about the fact that he was born and raised in Cuba versus in the U.S. and what that would mean for trying to work out a partnership. Yeah. But, but overall, you know, everything was pretty smooth. Yeah. Okay, so then your husband comes back, ex-husband, excuse me, comes back. Can you walk us through what that was like that time and when things started to shift, what you started to notice, what happened in your relationship? I mean, he's coming back with 
a whole year of some of the most intense traumatic events that I, you can't even imagine, right? I can't even imagine what that's like. Um, so what was that, no. what was that time like? Well, so he did get one um, leave visit. Uh, he came home for two weeks. It was after nine months of being gone. And that was really the first eye-opening experience um, because he was obsessed. He was obsessed with what was happening there. He was really worried about his guys. He really wanted to be there because he felt like he was letting them down by being gone. And he was the oldest soldier, um, um, enlisted soldier that was stationed in that 30, group of 30. And so, and some of them were like 18, you know, and they had very little life experience. Like I remember he came home one day and he was like, one of the soldiers that's going to be deployed is a virgin. He's like, he's had no, he's like, I told him, I'm like, you got, you don't know if you're going to live through this. You got to go try that because it's just, it's a life experience, you know? But like, it was like a huge deal to him was that these guys were so young and they were facing this, this, you know, very dangerous scenario. And it ended up being, I think, far more dangerous than anticipated. So he felt very responsible for them and very protective of them and um, really wanted to get them home safe. And so our visit was really hard because he wasn't able to be present with me at all. And um, and I was worried, you know, I was worried for him and, and wondering, you know, like, well, you know, well, he had three more months left. And so when he came back, I thought, you know, it should be, should be better because they won't be there anymore. They'll all come back together. Um, and unfortunately, that was not the case. Um, when he came home at the end of his deployment, he was, of course, ecstatic to be home. He missed me greatly. He was really happy to be back. But his temper was through the roof. And I never knew what was going to set him off, anything. He slept with the gun next to his bed and he was constantly getting up in the middle of the night and clearing the house, um, sometimes three, four times a night. He was just like, I would describe it as just generally uncomfortable all the time, on edge. And still, you know, of course, we still had great memories and we still had wonderful times, but they were truncated with these explosions and these like, like I, and I had to tell him at that point, that if he ever touched me physically, I was going to leave him no questions asked, no second chances, because I was afraid that he might cross that line. And um, and I and I set up a very clear boundary and I meant it. I was not going to live in that environment, but I was, here I am, it's kind of like I was saying, like, I'm a military wife, like I signed up for this, right? I knew he was deploying. Yeah. And so how, what is okay to put up with and what's not? It's a very difficult gray area. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit. You're starting to notice the temper, the anger, the rage. Um, I actually want to back up a second. From his standpoint, was he given any support where there was there areas in his life where he can go to help with the PTSD that he experienced? What was offered to him? You know, unfortunately, I don't know what was offered. And had I known more, I would have called his superior officer directly, um, which would have made him very upset. But I would have done that just to find out what the options were and what he really was offered. Mm -hmm. From his perspective, 
he didn't want anything on his record that was going to indicate that he was weak. So he didn't want any counseling on his record. He didn't want any diagnosis on his record. He was very concerned about the way that his record looked. And um, he did agree to go to counseling with me because I, I told him that I couldn't go any further with the relationship if he wasn't going to get any help. And he said, but I can't. And I said, well, what about couples counseling? And we'll go under my insurance and he agreed to that. So we went to couples counseling and he worked and it, and he was dedicated. And I mean, he would give me the, I don't want to go. I'm not going this week. And I would say, okay, it's you, you choose. It's an hour in the therapist's office or it's a divorce. You have to choose. Like, I mean, I'm not going <laughs> to fight with you. Yeah. What's and I'm the, not going to fight with you either. What's the reason for not wanting something to look weak in terms of the record? Did he have plans to, to kind of move up the ranks? On our first date, actually, I told him that I knew enough about military life and and what being a military wife meant with um, constant relocation that I knew that I couldn't do that. And so I respected his career and and I, I definitely wanted him to make a decision that was authentic for him. And again, first date. But I said, but if you are military career then we don't need to go any further than this date because I know I can't do that lifestyle. So the agreement that we had moving forward was that he was going to get out at the end of the three years. Um, as he got closer and closer to that, and especially after the deployment, yeah. um, he became very resistant to that idea. And so we again had that conversation. Like, okay, I... And I and I did I did authentically tell him I said you know and I and, and I it was not for lack of love I'm like I'm deeply in love with you, and I want to be with you, but if you need to do military career and I know authentically I can't, then I will send you off with blessings to do that. But I can't go with you on that. I knew that about myself at the time, and I think that that was accurate. And ironically. I think that might be different now, but with who I was then, that was very accurate. And um, so he chose he chose to get out at the end of the three years, but it was a battle. It was a battle after he got back from deployment. Definitely, we constantly had conversations. So I think he was hoping, I think he was hoping to be able to continue and wanted that off his record, but also it was just pride. Hmm. It was just pride. Pride and responsibility maybe, right? What, what do you yeah. experience? Had he when the when the idea of divorce came up, if, if, when you used that language, was that something that he wanted? How did he feel about the idea of, of divorce? Was that something that he ever mentioned or brought up himself, or is that something that more that you had brought up? No, he did not. Neither one of us wanted to divorce at all. Um, we both came from backgrounds where our parents had been divorced, and um, and so definitely not. And ultimately, we ended up making, I think, fair compromises. So there were lots of compromises that I made for the relationship, and he made a lot of compromises for the relationship as well, but they were healthy. They were within authentic expressions of who we were. We weren't giving up ourselves to do that. Yeah. And that was the line for me, was like, if I have to give up what I really truly value and believe in in order to make this relationship work, or if I definitely was not going to give up my safety, yeah. then then that was where 
where I had that conversation, but it wasn't, it wasn't like a threat. Like it wasn't like, well, you do this or I leave you. It was like, I understand and I can't go there with you. I can't, I can't authentically do that. I know myself well enough. And so we have to decide what's best for both of us as individuals and as a couple, what are we going to do with this? Um, and so, it, but it was really hard. And I know at one point, and this is also another red flag, he got really upset with me because I didn't, and the word he used was, quote, need him. I didn't need him. And I was really confused when he said that. And I said, so, and he was correct. I didn't have any um, anything to hold me back from leaving, right? So I, I was, I was, financially independent. I had a career that I was really proud of. I had lots of family support. I had lots of friends support. I was very capable. So there was nothing to keep me bound to the relationship in terms of external circumstances. And, um, and so, and I looked at him and I said, how can you, why is need what you want? I said, I'm choosing to be here. I'm choosing you every day. Why would you want that to be need when I, if I couldn't leave or I couldn't live without you? I said, I want my life with you in it. Um, and that was a, I don't know that that was really a common understanding. I don't know that that was something that he really understood. And, um, and again, I, I, that's one of the things that people with abusive tendencies tend to do is they do tend to try to get you isolated. They do tend to try to get you dependent economically or otherwise. So that's why pregnancy is often a very big push, you know, and so they're slowly stripping away. And, and then economically, a lot of times they'll want to be the sole provider. So they're sl slowly stripping away these abilities externally for you to be able to make clear choices about your own needs and desires. Um, I didn't allow that to occur. And so I had a lot of advantages that I realize and I acknowledge that people who are in um, in uh, abusive partnerships did not have or did do you, not have. Did you see that that was going on? Not necessarily from that standpoint, but did you get that feeling that like, hmm, he keeps wanting me to, to do things to make myself feel dependent? And did you kind of sense that and feel that resistance within yourself? No, I really just thought of it as one battle independent to of another. I didn't look at the whole picture. I didn't think about it as like what was happening. I really just took it as like one conversation at a time. Mm -hmm. And when he was deployed and when things were really, really stressful, uh, there was also some emotional abuse that occurred where he would threaten me um, about like, like, like that, uh, that I had done things that I had, I had betrayed him, that I had spent all his money, that I was seeing other people, like all of these things that were completely untrue. And, um, but it was, it was clear to me that it was very real to him. And actually he hung up on me a couple of times when he was deployed mm -hmm. and I couldn't call him back. I had no way to reach him. And so it was just excruciating to be hung up on in this circumstance. But again, you know, having a lens of like, I know he's fighting for his life every day. Yeah, yeah he couldn't control anything that was going on in his external circumstance there. Yeah, yeah and feeling paranoid that what he, because he, he, he said again and again that I was what was going to bring him home. 
I was the motivation that he wasn't going to do anything really stupid. He wasn't going to put himself out there and try to be a hero. He was going to be smart. He was going to be methodical and he was going to do the job to the best of his ability and stay safe because he was coming home to me. And so I think after some time, and then there's lots of stories, I'm sure, and my friends who are military wives um, have have said the same thing. There's lots of stories of wives that do, you know, stray or they do spend money or they do do horrible things. Everybody's human being. And so there's all different decisions and ways that people respond to different circumstances. But, you know, I was actually, we had actually set up a bank account just for the money that he was getting from his deployment. It was completely separate and I wasn't touching it at all. I was living on my own income because it was what I had been doing anyway. It was easy. And then we knew that we would have a nice cushion when he got home to decide if we wanted to buy a home or whatever we needed to do. But that's how we decided to handle that. And so so it was like, and he could see the money in, in the bank. Yeah. <laughs> Did he ask you but to stop working feels, too? Yeah. He 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 wanted me to have a family, and I think that that would have very quickly been the next been the next conversation. But we didn't ever get there because I just refused to go there with having children at that time. Got it. It's interesting because you know you're you're going into many conversations with this pressure, this emotion, emotional abuse, this verbal abuse. With did you ever feel that pressure to conform from the standpoint of like, maybe if I just give him this, then he'll be content, he'll be happy, he'll be at ease? Did that go through your mind at all? No, I didn't internalize it. And I know that that oftentimes victims will internalize it and think that it's their fault. And I, I really didn't. I really didn't internalize it as my fault. I really was looking at it from the perspective of him being traumatized mm. And, and him not having the support or the awareness that would allow him to make other decisions at that time. And I was not giving him a pass. I was holding him responsible. And, but, and that's where I said, you know, you need to do counseling or we can't do this anymore. It's not working. Like this is, this is going too far. And so, and he chose to do the counseling with me, which I later learned is actually counterproductive. Couples counseling for abusive relationships is counterproductive. I didn't know that. Why is that? <laughs> Can you talk about I don't know why. I just like, I came across it in some, I now am of course voraciously studying domestic violence and I I came across that in some reputable documentation and I don't remember what it was, but I just remember the shock. I was like, what? You know, now to the therapist's credit though, we did not have the typical dynamic of an abuser and victim because I really was holding on to these strands of independence that I think are often lost. Mm -hmm. And I think had it continued on in a very slow, persistent way, I might have ended up in that situation, but I was still very clear in my mind around my individuality and, and my personal power. And so my perspective in the relationship, instead of thinking that I was at fault for what was happening or that I deserved it, my perspective was, how do I prevent the next upset? Mm-hmm. How do I prevent him from getting triggered? And so I, tar- I started taking all kinds of really, you know, like um, intentional steps towards like, 
like my Facebook. Like I would only allow certain things to be posted on Facebook, even though I might just be having a conversation with a friend, but he would be like, who's that guy? You know? So I started to hide things that I wasn't doing anything wrong, but I was trying to prevent these explosions and these triggers. So that was the direction that I tried to go. Yeah. And so I want to go back to something that you had mentioned before, which is this moment during a conversation where you you said, and you kind of put the brakes, like if you ever put your hands on me, and I'm paraphrasing, then this is over. Can you talk about what made you say that in that moment and what you sensed? Oh, gosh. Um he would posture so he would get really close to me and he would puff up and he would look he was taller than I was so he would look down on me and I I wondered and oh my gosh I actually forgot about this this is actually this was the conversation that led to that led to us going to counseling and we did talk about it with the counselor um he also, uh, at one point, we were in the middle of a very heated argument, yelling, um, you know, very heated. And he postured and he came up close to me and he said, you, you would be amazed at the things that I see in my mind. He said, one of these days, I'm going to snap your freaking neck. And I, at that point, he meant it. And then I, at that point, I stepped back. So I, I, I immediately like, like, was like, okay, we're not, we're not fighting anymore. Like this, this fight is over. Um, and I was like, and you have, you have a decision to make. I said, we're either going to counseling or this is done. And he said, I'm not going to counseling. And I went into the bedroom and I started packing an overnight bag and I was going to go stay at my parents because there was no way that I was going to stay in the house with someone that wasn't willing to look at how extreme that was. And when that happened, he sat down in the living room and he was thinking. So I disarmed the argument completely because I was no longer pushing into it, right? So because I had stopped fighting, he stopped fighting. So there was like, it went from like super heated to like calm. But I was scared. And so I went in and I started packing an overnight bag and he sat down in the living room and he was thinking about what I had said. And he came in and he said, please, please don't leave. I love you. I want to make this work. I will go to counseling. And I said, you have to understand that if you ever put your hands on me at all, then this is done. I'm not going to live in fear. I'm not going to do it. So um, that's funny because I had actually forgotten about that moment and it was a pivotal moment and it was a pivotal moment for him because I think he really recognized that there could be a next step. I don't think he was aware that he was capable of going there, but I think it became real to him. Yeah. You realize what your, what those words come out and you actually hear yourself saying it. Was he, was he sober in that moment? Do you remember? Yeah, he was. Yeah, we were just home. I think it was just an afternoon and I something triggered his temper. Mm. And so then we started arguing and then it culminated into that. Do you remember if either you or he uh, used drugs or alcohol to handle some of the pain, some of the, the past trauma? 
You know, it's amazing because I don't, I don't think that that was one of the coping strategies that, that either of us were using. I, after the assault, I would say that I was definitely using alcohol a little bit to numb the pain. Mm. Um, and thankfully it didn't, didn't get into a problematic stage for me, but I definitely think that was part of my, my self-treatment. Um, at that time in our lives, we really didn't drink very much except when we went out and we were just being social. So, you know, but that, but we, we took it too far when we went out and we were social. We were both very, very social individuals. We both liked being out. We both liked the energy. And so we would definitely have too many drinks. And so I think that was a, a huge detriment ultimately. And I mean, obviously, um, as we tell the story, that <laughs> that became a really pivotal part of what ended up happening. But but as a habit, no. I mean, I think we basically just drank on the weekends. I mean, maybe we would have like a glass of wine with dinner, but it was very minimal. Yeah. Is, is Did your ex-husband have a lot of or any friends or support besides you in the area where you were living? No, he... He had a tough time making friends. Um, and I would say that most of that was because of his standards. He held people to very high standards. And so people experienced him as difficult. Um, he had one really good friend. And we would go out as uh, couples. And he was also military. And so we would go out as couples and have dinner and stuff like that. But they didn't like to do any of the pastimes that we did. So it was mostly just meeting for meals or whatever. Um, but other than that, I mean, he would, of course, be surrounded with guys all day at work. <laughs> I feel like he got a lot of his like interaction in that way. Yeah. But what was as he far doing? As close what, what, what work was he doing? Um, you know, who knows? Yeah. I don't know. Whatever they assigned him at that day. Sometimes yeah. they were carrying around inventory. Sometimes they were out like washing trucks. Sometimes, you know, it was just whatever the military yeah. was having his, his group. Do. But the guys really looked up to him and his group and yeah. he was considered a leader. And he was actually promoted very quickly up the ranks within the capability of, of his, um, standing because he did excel and he clearly was a leader that the others looked up to. And so they, they recognized that in his ranking, um, which I found, I found he was so proud of that too, which was wonderful. So it was very satisfying for him, um, that group of people. So I feel like he found solace in his role at work. He had this one really good friend and then he had me and that was more than enough for him from his perspective. Um, his family is down in Miami and he has really, really wonderful and loving friends down in Miami. Um, and they're all, to my knowledge, still there. So it wasn't that he was lacking support. It's just that in Alaska, he didn't necessarily have them immediately available. But he was on the phone with his friends and family constantly down there and staying in touch. Got it. So can you walk us through from the time you went into couples therapy now that I know that couples therapy isn't necessarily the best first stop um, after you, you've you come back from the military and had uh, some very interesting experiences with trauma. Um, but what happened after you went through couples therapy and how the actual events happened, the assault happened? Can you walk us through that? Yeah. And, and I don't want to, I, I just want to, just add on to what you say too, is that 
I don't want to say that for military couples, that couples counseling is not a wise decision because I think it very much could be. I think if there's abusive tendencies within the relationship, that's where it might not be the most effective approach. And what's recommended for couples that are dealing with abusive tendencies where there's an abuser and a victim is that whether it's emotional, physical, economic, sexual, all of the different kinds, um, that is independent treatment uh, mm-hmm. apart. Yeah. But definitely for, for military couples that are dealing with that transition and like that, I, I think that couples counseling could be a very, very wise decision. So, so, and so, yeah, so our couples counseling, I think it seems like it was going very, very well. And, um, we had some, <laughs> we had some really interesting and, and funny, like hindsight, funny experiences as we were going through the process of learning about each other and, and trying to heal and like that. And there was notable growth. There was notable change. Um, we were in counseling for about a year before uh, before the event happened. And we were still in counseling at the time, actually. And um, everything was going great. I mean, I, his, his explosiveness was down. We had worked out some major conflicts within the relationship and found fair compromises. We both felt like our needs were being attended, attended to. Um, I, I am going to say that one of the deficits in the relationship because of all the stress and because of, um, I think, uh, lack of awareness on my part was that the sexual side of the relationship was definitely lacking. And... I wasn't prioritizing it because for me, it just wasn't that big of a deal. And um, now knowing kind of how things unfolded and then also having learned more about loving relationships since that partnership, um, that was at my, I definitely was not stepping up to the plate in that area. But I don't even think we talked about it in counseling either. So that was also a unfortunate because it's a huge part of a really healthy relationship. But overall, things were going really well. And uh, we both felt pretty good. We were getting along well. We weren't having explosions. We actually decided that we were going to get pregnant. And so I was tracking my fertility. And so we were intimate, but it just was not in the manner that (laughs) because I would literally be like, okay, we've got 10 minutes to go. (laughs) And he was like, feel like you're using me. (laughs) Very goal oriented. I'm familiar with that as well. Yeah, I was very goal oriented. I was like, no, we got to make sure we, you know, get the target. Like, let's go. And so that was happening. So, but the the side that wasn't happening that was lacking was the sensual side and the connection and, Mm. and all of that. So yeah, uh, Ultimately, can I ask you a question I, there? Sorry oh, to interrupt yeah. you. I was just curious when you're you're going to counseling, you're seeing a change. You're, you're maybe less temper from him. Are you are you noticing the change that okay? I could actually breathe more from a survival standpoint because I'm not as worried as I was before. Versus, we're actually connecting more. Is that what the change that you're experiencing is like? things are getting better he seems to be getting better or were or and but we're not necessarily growing closer in our connection or was that happening as well or bits and pieces i think both uh we were growing closer we were um and and i and i wasn't afraid at all anymore you know i had no 
I had no reservations. Um, every once in a while, I would do something that he found embarrassing in public. And I think, again, this goes back to a cultural a cultural influence for him too. But every once in a while, I would do something that he found embarrassing. Like I might say something that he felt was an insult towards him mm. when I didn't view it that way, like making a joke or something. Mm. And he would get very stern and very controlling in that context. But outside of that, which which was, again, kind of a pride and like, a, you know, a, um, an identity kind of a thing for him. Yeah. But, um, and, and I, and I do have to say that trying to bridge, you know, drastic cultural differences in a relationship, especially when you're bridging language, um, because I do speak Spanish proficiently and it really opened my mind to learn Spanish in a whole new way. And so I can only imagine, you know, the influence that language has in our individual experiences and then culture is like so pervasive and it's, it sets into our subconscious beliefs at such a level that it's literally the world that we see, right? So trying to bridge that in a partnership uh, was really, really difficult. And so, but we worked really hard on it and I do have a great story about that. Should I go into yeah, that? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Okay, so we were... <laughs> But when we were in counseling, this is like during the year that we were in counseling, we had an argument one day because he told me to do something and I disagreed. And he said to me, it's a man's job to tell a woman what to do. And I said, I'm sorry, can you say that one more time? <laughs> he said, it is a man's job to tell the woman what to do because a woman doesn't know what she's supposed to do. And I was like, okay, we're not even going to argue about this. We're just going to bring this up in our next counseling session. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. And he was like, okay, yeah, because that's the way that it is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, okay. So then we go, we go, we go into our couple's mm -hmm. counseling. I know. We go into our couple's counseling. And again, right, culture. Is your counselor and, a man or a woman? I have the picture Woman. Of She's okay. a woman. Okay. Yeah. So we go in to see her. We sit down and I say, we've got a great topic to start with this week. Oh, <laughs> she goes, okay, great. And I said, Johan, go ahead. You tell her, you tell her what, what you told me. And so he said verbatim, like just totally earnest and vulnerable and honest. Mm. Like, I mean, I really like appreciated it so much. And that's how he was. He mm. was just himself and unapologetic about it. And he was like, it's the job, it's a man's job to tell women what to do because women don't know what they're supposed to do. And my, and my camp, my counselor goes, oh, that's very funny. And I go, no, no, he's not joking. And Johan goes, I'm not joking. <laughs> she goes, okay. Oh. <laughs> She says, we're going to do something that I did in my marriage. And it's, it seemed to help a little bit in, for what we were dealing with. I think it might help here. Yeah. And I was like, okay. She said, Lise, you're going to go on wife strike. And I was like, what? And she goes, you're going to stop doing everything that you do for the relationship and for the house wow. for two weeks. Or it might be one week. I can't remember, but it was like all the cleaning, all the cooking, anything that I did, you know, out of attentiveness and like, I mean, still, of course, respecting him and, you know, whatever, but just, 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 I didn't have, I only had to worry about myself and I was to stop consciously doing anything to help upkeep the home. 
And so, because that was one of the biggest things. He didn't like to clean. I loved living in a clean space. This was like a huge difficulty for us. So I did that. I did exactly that. So he knew that I was going to stop cooking, which was a really big bummer for him because that was one of the things that he loved for me to do for him. And, um, but I stopped cleaning and I also stopped doing my own dishes. So I would just leave them in the sink and let them pile up, which I would never, ever do. <laughs> so soon he goes into the kitchen. I think it had been a few days. He goes into the kitchen and he yells out from the kitchen, you at least have to do your own dishes. This is just, you know? <laughs> but like, you know, and he, so he's in there, he's grumbling and he's doing the dishes and he's so upset about it. But I'm like, this is what was prescribed. And like, this is, I'm doing what I was told. You were there, right? Like I had the backing and he trusted her. So he was like, yeah, he's like so angry. And ultimately what I ended up discovering in that week was that he hated cleaning. He absolutely hated cleaning, which I already knew. And he missed me cooking for him so much. Like it was like a huge difficulty for him. And I didn't like to cook. So that was a huge sacrifice for me to cook for him. And so I finally, I, I came up with an idea and I said, you know, and I was working full time. And actually at that point, I was working very long hours sometimes, sometimes anywhere from 12 to 16 hours wow. in my shifts. <laughs> so I said, here's the deal. I said, if I come home and the house is a mess, I'm going to clean. If I come home and the house is clean, I'll cook for you. And that's the deal. I said, so, you know, you decide. It's up to you. So the, after I said that, <laughs> I went to work. I came home. Not only was the entire house clean, but he was still vacuuming. Wow. <laughs> Talk about motivation right there. <laughs> value goes, of a home-cooked meal at its finest. Yeah, birthday. it was a huge deal for him, but it wasn't yeah. the food. It mm. was the gesture, mm. right? Like I, And that's the other thing about him is he was so loving about it. I, I didn't like to cook. I wasn't a great cook. And so sometimes I would severely burn or ruin whatever I was making and I'd be like, oh, I'm going to throw it away. And he'd go, no, don't throw it away. You made it. I'm going to eat it. Wow. And he would say, give it to me. I want it. And then he would go, oh, babe, this is so good. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. Just pure gratitude the whole time. Wow. So it was about the gesture. It was about me caring for him. It was something really meaningful to him. And yeah, and so, but I mean, I will never forget when I came home, he hates, he hated vacuuming more than anything. And he's, there he is vacuuming and he looks up and he goes, babe, what's for dinner? <laughs> wow. wow. Yeah, so we really had huge breakthroughs. We had, we had found ways to meet each other to yeah. come closer you know it was really working i think yeah you he, he you learned what it was like to show him how he wanted you to care for him exactly and then for me to understand what it was that he was needing like and that's that's the difficulty right when you're trying to build a partnership like that's that's what it's all about you know cuz you can't know these things you can't read each other's minds and so yeah, it's a, it's a tough process and it's a little bit like kind of grinding at each other and getting smoother as you're going, you know? You walk me through, you alluded to, to alcohol earlier on. Can you walk me through to the day where the assault happened and what that was like for you? Yeah, um, so we went to a beautiful 
party that was on a boat and it was a Latin dancing party. So there was great music. There was some food. It was out on the river. Um, and it was, it was me and him and it was, um, my best friend Megan at the time. And she was going through a divorce of her own. She was also a military wife, but soon to be ex military wife. And she was really having a difficult time as well. And so I knew that, and so I was trying to include her as much as I could in what I was doing. So I invited her to come out and join us. So she met us at the dock, and we all got on the boat, and we were having a great time. Boat ride was beautiful. There was tequila shots. There was this and that, right? And then after that, there's a post-party um, at one of the local bars. This is an annual thing in town. There's a post-party where everybody goes, and they keep dancing, and they keep having some drinks maybe, whatever. And... I wasn't feeling that well toward the end of the boat ride. Um, I don't know if I was dehydrated or whatever the reason was, but I just was like, you know, I'm really not feeling like going to the post party. I'm going to go home. And so I got a taxi and I went home and then they went with the shuttle and they went over to the party. And I got home, I drank water, I went to bed. And at about two in the morning... I heard that they came back to my apartment because um, she was actually house-sitting. And so it was far out of town. So she was going to stay at our our place for the night. We had a second bedroom. And I heard them come in and they were kind of loud and, you know, talking and laughing and stuff like that. And then they turned on the, the TV. And, and so I was like, okay, great. They're home. They're safe. I'm going back to sleep. So I went back to sleep and I don't know how much time passed, not much, maybe like 45 minutes. And I woke up again and all I heard was the TV and I didn't hear any other noise. So I decided to get up and go check. I was like, oh, they probably just fell asleep on the couch. <laughs> so I get up and I go out to the living room and, and there's nobody there. And it's like a two bedroom apartment with like every other part of the apartment is like um, open. And so I was looking around and I was so confused because I was like, where could they be? I don't understand. Like, you know, I was experiencing very palpable denial at that point because <laughs> I could not in my mind make sense of the only logical explanation. <laughs> and so I was like, well, there's only one room left and that's the other bedroom. <laughs> and so I go down and I open the bedroom door and sure enough, they were in bed together and they were kind of separated at the time, like um, like he was on his back and she was kind of rolled over. And so needless to say, I got extremely upset. Um, but I think when I look back that even though like I had an upset reaction, I didn't lose my temper. I just was like, I don't understand how you guys can be doing this like you know like who are you like and so I went out into the living room I'm trying to remember this it's been a long time now it's been about six seven years so I went out into the living room and I was kind of pacing back and forth and um my husband at the time got up and he put some shorts on and he came out and he was extremely intoxicated like extremely intoxicated and my friend stayed in the bedroom she didn't move so she just stayed in the bedroom and so he came out and I looked at him and I said we're gonna deal with this later 
you have to leave. Now, looking back in this scenario now, <laughs> I recognize that's probably not the wisest scenario to suggest, but I just wanted him away from me. And I, I it felt like this is my home, get out, right? Yeah. Um, not very logical considering that he was extremely intoxicated. So he immediately starts towards the door. So he listened to me. So he immediately starts towards the door and he starts heading down the stairs to leave and he's at this point only in boxer shorts. Okay. So then he turns around and he's coming back up the stairs. And this is where I made the mistake. This is what, what did it is I stood in his way at the top of the stairs and I said, no, you need to leave now. And there was something about that dynamic. And I, it, I didn't yell it. I wasn't aggressive. I just was very stern. And there was something about that dynamic that triggered him. And he had a full-on flashback in my um, my opinion because I saw the thousand-yard stare clicking. And the way that that looked was that his eyes, his vision kind of like retracted back into his head. Like it was very, very visual. I could see it. I watched it happen. And at that point... I believe that he didn't know who I was or where he was. I believe that he literally was in a flashback and I was a threat. And so he stepped up to my level and he picked me up um, and a trained military, um, frontline army, very strong and quite a bit larger than I was. And he started to shake me and he had never touched me before. And so I screamed out to my friend, if we can call her that. But I screamed out to her. She was in the bedroom. And I said, call 911. And so then eventually I was fighting, right? So I'm trying to get him to let me go. I'm trying, I'm trying to push off of him. I'm trying to get loose. And then he put me, he, he got himself around so that he was behind me and he was trying to hook his arm under my chin. And so at that point, I'm biting, I'm scratching, I'm reaching behind me, I'm, you know, I'm kicking, I'm trying to do everything that I can. He finally succeeds in getting his arm under my chin and locking down. And then at that point, he pulled me backwards onto his stomach. So he fell down to the ground on his back, and I was on my back. And then he wrapped his legs around my legs. So it was the point at which he pulled me backwards that I thought I was going to die. I was quite sure at that point that that was the end. That was the last breath that I took. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode with Lisa Marie. We're going to pick up right here next week as she tells the last part of this incredible story. Thanks so much for listening to the episode. If something resonated with you and you'd like to share it, please email me at adam at escocoaching.com or send me a message on social media. 